There's one simple reason we're missing our goal, inequality. HIV does not discriminate, we do. To successfully respond to pandemics, communities must be at the center. Hi, this is Karin Weiss and welcome to the Medicus Mundi Switzerland Health for All podcast. And today we talk with Caroline Goms, who lives in Kingston, Jamaica. She's famous for being a successful human rights advocate after being a medical doctor. For her dedication and passion for human rights, she received several awards, among them the United Nations Human Rights Award in 2008. She's also the board member of the Developing Country NGO Delegation to the Global Fund Board, where I met Caroline several times during the Global Fund Board sessions. Caroline, this is a great pleasure having you on the Medicus Mundi Switzerland Health for podcast today. Welcome to this episode. Thank you very much, Karine. Glad to be with you and talking about important stuff. You are a HIV advocate and passionate, really passionate about serving and supporting communities which are very vulnerable to injustice and human rights. And today we celebrate the World AIDS Day with the motto End Inequalities and AIDS and Pandemics. Where do we stand today with the HIV pandemic? We're in, we're in a bit of a crossroads, Corinne. I mean, we've made so many advances since the epidemic first came into play. We've made more advances with the global formation of the Global Fund and the recognition of the role of, of communities and vulnerable communities in actually setting, helping to set direction at board level and being integral to the work of the Global Fund. We've made huge strides medically. We've had a series of targets that have been very successful in reducing deaths from AIDS, but not in prevent, not as successful as we needed to be in ensuring prevention of new infections of AIDS. So really, and then we had the COVID-19 pandemic, which set everything back. It impacted all the HIV programming, malaria programming, TV programming. But it, it put a spotlight on the need for prevention in a way that's happy to see reflected in a new global fund strategy. Um, but it also put a huge spotlight on communities. And I'm very pleased that communities at the center is one of the focuses of the global fund and of its work for the new strategy, which will come into play in 2023. UNH highlights the urgent need to end these inequalities that drive the HIV and other pandemics around the world. What do we mean with inequalities? It's really interesting, and I'm so glad that UNH has adopted this framework because it points, from my mind as a human rights advocate, I've always invested in that opening phrase of, of the Universal Declaration. All human beings are born free and equal. And it's from that free freedom and equality that we get the rights and the codification of rights. So if we don't address that underlying inequality, then we can't really enjoy our rights as we should. So when we talk about inequality, we talk about inequality in access, in economics, in access to health care, in access to information, in education, in 
the tools that we need to protect ourselves from HIV, but we also talk about inequalities as it relates to how people are treated on the basis of a number of intersecting factors on whether or not you are a, a transgender person, you're an LGBT person, you are a person who does sex work, you are a person who uses drugs. All of those result in, in too many societies, in your having less treatment that doesn't allow for the equality of your being. So you have criminalization of your drug use, you have criminalization of your sex work. You have, in some instances, very unfortunate instances, they have um, criminalization of your HIV status and the risk of, your, of, of transmission, from criminalization of passing HIV to another person and, and you could be charged and locked up if found guilty. So inequalities are very intersecting, they're very complex. Everybody knows them. Everybody knows an overcrowded, under-resourced school in a rural area that doesn't give kids the education. And that, that is a different school than a, a well-resourced in school in a high-income area where the parents are contributing and the children have lots of resources. Everybody knows that. You see that. Everybody knows when you have uh, big cities where you have lots of access to medical care and poor urban, poor rural areas where you have very little access to healthcare, and sometimes it's miles away from where you live and you have no transport, need no easy access to transport. But all of the inequalities of race, of gender, of, of um, sexual orientation, of recreational drug use or drug use, full stop, intersect to produce a person who is not getting from the society in which they are born and live the same access to their rights, their same access to services, their same access to the dignity that they should have based on the fact that they're a human being who's breathing. HIV has threatened so many lives for the past 40 years. Are inequalities the only driver of HIV? It's not the only driver of inequality, but it, is, it underlies many of the other drivers of HIV. Um, so unprotected sex is a huge driver of HIV. Uh, but that is driven in turn by a large, and often by power dynamics by gender inequalities, by the inability of young girls to get the sexual education they need to be able to, to um, protect themselves in sexual encounters. It, it drives very often the inability of young girls to say no to unprotected sex because they need the, the man who is forcing himself on them to be able to eat or go to school. So we have trading of... of Live, if we were richer, we wouldn't have to be doing this. If we were from a different level of society, we wouldn't have to be doing this. If we had better education, we'd know how to protect ourselves. So it's those underlying inequalities that very often drive the HIV risk. Where do you see the solution? Well, I'm a human rights activist. So I, I really and honestly see it in accepting and finding ways to challenge the underlying inequalities in societies. And these may be class inequalities, they may be economic inequalities, they may be 
holdovers from colonial societies where people were, some people were more equal than others, and we put that in quotation marks, of course, where the understanding in the societies that women are less than men or that people who use drugs are this or people of a different race are that or migrants are this, which makes it possible to discriminate against people, which makes it possible to otherize them which makes it possible for us not to not even try to realize a human life. If we can work towards the achievement of equality as guaranteed by your rights, as expressed by your rights, then we can in many, many ways address the drivers of HIV. If we can take away the societal stigma that drives LGBTI persons to be having unprotected sex or to be afraid to go to the doctor for testing or to be afraid to disclose their status, then we, cannot, we, we, we can be getting a handle on HIV. If we can remove criminal laws that drive people away from healthcare, if we can remove the stigma and discrimination that allows a, a healthcare worker to tell you that you have to read this Bible verse before you can see the doctor, and the Bible verse says that you are a, a low-life person because you're you're a man having sex with men, or if it can, you know, the stigma that allows young girls to be not allowed to get access to contraceptive education in public health clinics when they have nowhere else to get it. If we can remove that stigma, that discrimination, if we can see every human being as, as being equal to the nurse in the clinic, to the doctor in the clinic, if we can make sure that we understand that every person is born equal in dignity and rights, in freedom and rights, and if we can address those barriers, that inequality that underlies their vulnerability. We've seen over the last 10 years that a medicalized approach to HIV can only go so far. So we focus a lot on the 95, 90, the 90, 90, 90, and all the 95, 95, 95. But that presumed so much. It presumed that having an HIV diagnosis was not going to get you thrown out of your community. It presumed that people knew that. It presumed that people could go freely to a clinic to get their treatment and not face discrimination and not be afraid of having their status disclosed. It presumed that medicine could cure it, but it can't because we need to make sure that we are curing what keeps people away from testing, from linking to clinic, from taking their medication. Even economic inequalities, which don't allow people to have sufficient food to be able to take their HIV medications. And I think we've seen with, with the pandemic of COVID, how inequalities are so structural and they drive so much of how the world operates. And they've helped to lay bare how inequalities operate to make some people more vulnerable than others. And it's really, I think, an opportunity for us to seize the UN framework, the UNAIDS framework, to seize the Global Fund new strategy, which talks about health, human rights. It talks about communities in the center. It talks about access to healthcare, people-centered healthcare. 
that we can then use to attack the HIV virus where it is most vulnerable, mm-hmm. and that is in vulnerable people. Exactly. And these vulnerable people are often unheard and the most affected communities are often not considered when we come to planning new programs, to accessing new commodities. Why is it so difficult to engage with the communities most affected by HIV? Part of why it's so difficult to engage with them is because we try and tell them what they need to do rather than have them tell us what they need. We fail to listen, we try to speak. And I think that to me is one of the biggest pluses of the new Global Fund strategies that we are saying they have to be in the center. And they're not in the center only as receivers of services. They are in the center as providers, as technical advisors, as people who know what they need. And until... People, I mean, I used to, when I was working with Caribbean vulnerable communities, do workshops when I talked about the fact that no sex worker walks around with a label on her forehead or his forehead that says, I'm a sex worker, I need information. You want to reach the sex worker community? You must engage with the sex worker community to take you in and to let you know what's happening and what they need. And what are the barriers? And so that it's, for me, it's very energizing that that community it's at the center is in the strategy that we can couple with, with a recognition from UNAIDS about the inequalities that are driving HIV and seek to, to turn that into meaningful action that is truly people-centered, led, and that communities are describing their needs and wants are enabled to provide those needs and wants to their own communities And are also provided with and enabled to be doing the monitoring and the reporting that is so critical to see whether, in fact, we are able to deliver what the communities need. What about civil society organization? From what I perceive, civil society organization were also left out in many discussions, especially in the last or the past year with the fight of COVID-19. What needs to change that civil society organizations are heard and respected for their work they do? I think it's slowly changing, Karine. I I absolutely agree with you that the first responses to COVID have been government and medical rather than civil society. But civil society is exactly what civil society is an agglomeration or a coalition of communities, of practice, of communities of thought, of communities that are non-governmental. And so as the fight against COVID has gone on, I think the voices of civil society that have been saying you're doing this wrong. You need, to, you need to not rely on big pharma to make sure that everybody has equitable access to vaccines. You need to rely on the communities and the people in the countries and the less developed countries to tell you what they need and to ensure that we understand that we cannot, we cannot keep production on one side and receipt on the other. We have to engage and be doing both together in order to be able to reach everybody. And the voice of civil society, I think, it was so critical for the entire HIV struggle. I mean, without them, we'd still be buying medicine at whatever price we were buying medicine at, instead of being able to provide it so cheaply and so effectively. Um, and I think that the rec- for me again, and I, I really do believe in the, in the structure of, of global funding, that it en- enables 
and recognizes that civil society is not just a recipient, it's actually a governance mechanism with its two civil society constituencies. And I think together with the community's constituency, I think we've had a really great impact this year on the, on the strategy that has come forward, which I'm really hopeful sets a template that we'll be able to implement effectively on the principles laid out in that framework. Let's talk a little bit about your journey. How come you are so passionate about helping vulnerable groups? Because I think you changed when you, you, you were first a medical doctor and then in 2002 something happened and you changed and you became a human rights activist. What happened at that time? A number of things happened in my life. I mean, one of the things that I'm very grateful for is the family I was born into who really saw service as something that was part of what one needed to do. Um, and medicine was my first choice of service. And pediatrics was where I landed and found a great home and a comfort in. But never have been, never have been remote from the society and all of the structural inequalities in which I grew. I'm a white Jamaican and that gave me certain advantages and benefits. It gave me a certain take on history. But I'm also a mixed Jamaican and so I have background of slavery and inequality and 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 then I came face to face with it 94 I think it was when I was working as a medical doctor and the police shot somebody at the hospital that I was working at and they shot him so unjustly and bullets were flying and I heard the story and I went public well I went anonymously to the public to, to detail what I knew about what had happened to this person and got immediately death threats in my office And we began working against police abuse and abuse of children in the society. And from there, made the transition to Caribbean vulnerable communities. But by then, I had become con completely convinced that people have the solutions for their problems. But we don't listen. And we don't hear. And sometimes we don't even see that we could ask as the power brokers in the society. We use people for power. We don't listen to people to see what they need. Give us a final word for the World AIDS Day today. That's a tough one. The final word is that we, we can, but we have to believe that we can. And AIDS, we can bring vulnerable and marginalized communities into wholeness. We can address inequalities. We must if we ever want to see the end. Thank you so much for this interview and I wish you a lot of success with your future endeavors. Thank you, Karina. Enjoy chatting and let's celebrate. Celebrate at World AIDS Day, how far we've come, but recognize we have a ways to go and we only have six years in which to do it. So let's do it. the Medicus Mundi Switzerland Health for podcast with Karin Weiss. You can listen to it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and on our website. To spread the message, please leave a comment on our website, share and like it. This was the first episode of the new season on HIV AIDS in the name of the World AIDS Day in 2021. Stay tuned and watch out for the next episode where we will be talking about the importance of advocacy in the fight against HIV.